Today on The Free Marketeers, we're talking about the Quilani judgment and implications for hate speech in South Africa with advocate Mark Oppenheimer, coming up soon. Mark, always a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you very much for being with us once again. It's always great to get to pick your brain on all, all legal matters. As I mentioned, of course, you're an advocate and you've been involved in the Quilani case for, for a long time now. Um, so I wanted to get your, I guess, the introductory remarks just on what the case was about for those who weren't familiar with it at the time and now recently since it's been resolved. Sure. So it's had three different stages. Um, I think we should start off by just rewinding back to the article when it came out. So in 2008, John wrote an article which had the headline, Call Me Names But Gay Is Not Okay. And it was accompanied by a cartoon of a man marrying a goat. And the pastor saying, I now pronounce you man and goat. Um, now, John didn't write the headline and he had nothing to, to do with the cartoon. But I think both of these things were held against him. The content of the article was really about his critique of gay marriage. So this was 2008, so South Africa had legalized gay marriage in 2006, and we were the fifth country in the world to have done so. Um, and there'd been a lot of heated debate about this question. I think for a long time, many people thought that the idea of gay marriage was either uh, not a possibility, because they sort of think of marriage as by definition between being between one man and one woman, or that it is somehow immoral. Uh, now, so John in his article said, I pray that politicians would have the balls to change those parts of the constitution that allow a man to marry a man and ditto a woman. The article didn't uh, target gay people, um, but as I say, it targeted gay marriage. Uh, the, it was published in the Sunday World, a sort of uh, a tabloid, and uh, the next issue of it was filled with all sorts of people's comments complaining about what John had written and putting out counter views. You know, and that's the advantage of of free speech really is that people disagree with each other publicly and they can change each other's minds. Uh, the press council received a large number of complaints about the article and they ultimately made a finding uh, that the article wasn't hate speech. Um, but there was also a referral to the high court um, sitting as an equality court. And that court uh, held a trial process where there was evidence led. I wasn't uh, counsel at this stage. Um, and uh, there was a finding that the article constituted hate speech. John had uh, denied the article was, was hate speech and also challenged uh, the hate speech section of the Equality Act. Now, there'd been a lot of ambiguity as to what that section meant, um, and he held that uh, it was unconstitutional for infringing the right to free speech. Um, the High Court dismissed um, his challenge on constitutionality and found that he was liable for hate speech. He then took the matter on appeal. Um, and at that juncture, I then acted for him in the Supreme Court of Appeal. Uh, the Supreme Court of Appeal upheld the finding that the article, um, well, that, that the section uh, was unconstitutional. The section had all this ambiguity because it talked about um, words that were uh, hurtful, um, harmful, uh, or incite harm. And it was unclear which of those things had to be used, whether there was an and or an or, uh, what the meaning of the term hurtful was, um, what the, the sort of subjective state of the speaker's mind had to be, whether they had to intend to go and you know, 
cause these things to happen in the world. Uh, there was also a debate as to which categories would be protected. So if we step back a little bit, our constitution, you know, grants this right to free speech, but as an exception for hate speech. And it says that the free speech rights does not extend to advocacy of hatred on one of four grounds, race, gender, ethnicity, and religion, and that constitutes an incitement to cause harm. Now, um, the Equality Act doesn't just have these four categories. It has about 17. Uh, it includes um, beliefs, uh, culture, um, language, uh, a whole range of things. And the Supreme Court ultimately found there was enough evidence to say that the gay community is a persecuted community, um, that in South Africa we have incidents of corrective rape, um, there was someone who was beheaded um, because he was a gay rights activist. And they said, you know, sexual orientation is analogous to those other listed grounds. Um, and they therefore extended uh, the protection um, to sexual orientation, um, but but didn't to all the others. So they struck down the Equality, Court, the, the Equality Act's uh, test and replaced it with a new test which mirrored the Constitution but added in sexual orientation. Because they declared the act to be unconstitutional, it then had to go to the Constitutional Court. And the Constitutional Court then uh, delivered judgments a couple of weeks ago. Um, and it, it really is a groundbreaking case in terms of dealing with, with what hate speech requires. We haven't done it um, since a case called Islamic Unity, which was about 20 years ago. So before I ask you specifically just on the hate speech implications, I thought it would be useful to just if possible, delineate the, the sort of differences, as it were, or similarities, maybe both, between hate speech versus offensive speech. Um, if, I mean, is it always up to a judge, for example, to decide it? Is it clear? Can, can any of us sort of pull out, pull out our pocket constitutions, which I hope we all have, especially in uh, the increasingly police states in which we live, and you can then point to, okay, this is hate speech, this is offensive speech, etc.? Yes, yeah, so the, the Constitutional Court deals with that question explicitly, and it says that offensive speech, speech which is shocking or disturbing, is not hate speech. Um, it relied on a Canadian case called Watcut, um, and it makes it very clear that there is a sharp distinction between those two categories. Um, and so the, the court points out why free speech is uh, you know, a fundamental value, uh, and it sort of says that there are really four different reasons why we should value free speech. Uh, the first is it's the best tool that we have for finding out what is actually true. So you have this marketplace of ideas where people can say things, express different opinions um, about values, about um, you know evidence, and they can clash their swords together. And under that process, um, we're more likely to find out what is true than allowing a sort of central authority to determine that for us. Um, also think that in that process, you're going, there are going to be certain kinds of opinions that people are not going to like, as I say, these shocking or offensive opinions. But it's important that we uh, embrace this value of tolerance. And to tolerate something doesn't mean that you approve of it. It often means that you specifically disapprove of it. So, for example, we don't tolerate sunsets and rainbows. Um, we tolerate things that we dislike, things that we find um, repulsive or offensive. We say, look, I wouldn't want to do that but I think it's okay if you're allowed to do that. You know, we think about this in terms of John Stuart Mill's famous phrase, you know, you should be free to swing your fist to the edge of my nose and no further. Um, and we might think about that specifically with regards to things that are racist or sexist. Um, you might think that there's a danger in suppressing that speech um, and that as much as you might dislike it, 
uh, it creates a steam valve. So if people are able to express those repugnant ideas, they're more likely uh, to sort of keep it at the realm of words as opposed to you know the realm of action. Uh, and also it allows society to sort of find out how many people harbor these dangerous ideas. And you might want to dedicate you know, um, more room towards combating them in the marketplace of ideas. And the other one is that you know, in a democracy, it's important that citizens are able to kind of canvas all the different views that are out there. That to exercise your democratic will means you know, knowing what your options are. And if you treat people you know, like children and you try and protect them from content, you're not treating them as if they are real agents. Um, so you know, the court recognizes that agency, dignity, freedom, those things are all intertwined. Um, but recognizes that you know, genuine hate speech can cause serious problems in the world. And there's some point where you want to be able to limit that speech. I'm guessing, I mean, that point about limiting that speech and harm, uh, we can, I mean, we can specifically talk about COVID-19 and what's happened in the last year with the spreading of different news and data in terms of vaccines, in terms of ivermectin, this kind of thing. Do you, I mean, not to put you on the sort of predicting spot, as it were, to gaze into your crystal ball, but do you think we're going to have cases in that regard? I think there is, I mean, yeah, isn't there a, there is some legislation around what you can publish, what sort of considered quote unquote fake news, that kind of thing, what opinions you can provide on WhatsApp groups, that sort of thing. What do you think of that, of that specific sphere, as it were? Yes, it's a very good example. Um, so the the regulations do uh, limit speech with regards to COVID. Um, mm. It says that you can't intentionally disseminate false information uh, about COVID or about, I think, um, government's attempts to uh, curb COVID. But now it's not just luckily there haven't been any, sorry. Luckily, there haven't been any attempts by government to curb it, so you can't comment on it. <laughs> um, so. Yeah, there's, it's different saying something false versus knowingly disseminating false information. Right. So people are going to say false stuff all the time. I mean, scientists are going to do that all the time because they're, they're trying to work out what's true. So you put out an hypothesis, you know, you think maybe it's this, maybe it's that. Uh, it turns out that that doesn't match with objective reality. But you're not trying to mislead anyone. You're actually trying to find out what's true. Um, now, it's different if you are a propagandist who knows what's true and is deliberately trying to, you know, implant a false idea in people's minds. Now, you might still think that that kind of speech is protected. Um, you know, fake news is not one of those things that's carved out in our constitution. And so that is the kind of thing that will need to be tested. Um, there was a case early on with someone who made a claim that the government was going to send people door to door to do COVID tests, uh, and that those tests uh, were contaminated themselves with COVID. And so you should refuse to, to get to swab up your nose on that basis. And uh, a charge was laid against him. Um, I'm not sure what has happened with that case, um, but he may very well have sincerely believed it. And I think there was some evidence of uh, contaminated tests in the UK. Uh, so it wasn't a completely made up thing. Um, but on, if you think about if you think about COVID, you know, one of the the lines that was taken by was by Facebook was that if you said that COVID was disseminated through a lab leak, um, your post would get flagged or removed. It's now transpired that that is a viable possibility, that maybe it was a lab leak, maybe it was through a wet market. So it's quite useful to allow people to explore these ideas because they may turn out to be true. 
uh, central planners are not very good at finding out what's true. Um, whereas markets are incredibly good at doing that um, because you've got so many people working to try and explore ideas. And along the way, they're going to make lots and lots of mistakes. Um, but you've got the opportunity to kind of correct it, to test your ideas out. You know, same thing's going to happen with regards to different treatments. So people might look at um, some of the evidence for a drug like ivermectin. And if you look at some of the studies, a lot of those early studies were quite promising. Um, it appeared to be an efficacious drug. Uh, some of the meta studies even look like it'd be promising. Um, but it appears from the latest that I'd looked at that there are some concerns with the drug. One of them is that it uh, could have a masking effect. So um, it might be that you have a case of COVID, uh, the symptoms are suppressed, and when you go into hospital, the doctor is unaware of how far down the line you are, and they're unable to treat you with the correct drugs because your symptoms are being suppressed. And that could be a very negative thing. Um, but you know, along the way, what you want is to be able to people to be able to explore these different things because ultimately we all care about the same thing, which is avoiding the risks of COVID, which means trying to find you know good drug therapies, finding out you know uh, efficacious vaccines are, what their risks are. It's one of the great cases for why free speech is very very important. We'll get back to Kualani in, in a bit because I've got a few more questions which will help us, I guess, clarify our thinking there. But just on the, the COVID point and the fake news, I know, was it earlier this year or last year, Facebook was going to possibly appear before Parliament. So I just wanted to ask, well, I mean, while we're talking about the topic, is it only the regulations that you mentioned that sort of govern, quote unquote, fake news? Is it a case of, never mind COVID, but stuff in the future, I don't know, around climate change or other issues which are going to be more burning if you'll excuse the pun uh, issues in the future will the minister of communications determine what's fake news luckily we have limited spectrum in south africa so we can't all connect to the internet as we might well do in a normal situation but what do you think just of of fake news regulation and the regulation of these public platforms yeah so there's different ways in which the regulation can come out the one is driven by the state right so in other right. words you have a criminal sanction for it or some kind of civil sanction for it um and i think there is a concern about how do you determine what's true um you know and on what standard and you know uh, with reference to you know who's experts uh, especially when you're dealing with a situation where it's it's not quite clear what the what the genuine facts are, like like our Labley case. We just don't know. There's nothing definitive that goes one way or the other on the source of COVID. Um, you may find, for example, that this idea of being able to declare things fake news uh, suits a certain kind of interest. In other words, um, if you are a government authority and you don't want anyone to challenge it, well, one way to do it is to condemn everyone else's fake news. Um, so it's a way to kind of hide you know um and that's very dangerous you want people to be able to you know say things to challenge you know what the state says or what you know certain orthodoxy says so you can find out what's actually true um the other kind beyond state regulation is as you point out this kind of social media regulation and that's pretty serious i mean if you think about how many billion people uh, express their ideas on facebook the idea that facebook can then determine um what is true uh is a little dangerous because there you're dealing with a central authority, um, you know, and it's a small number of people based in Silicon Valley who are deciding, you know, this is what we think is true. The other kinds of ways of doing that sometimes not to not to remove the speech, but to flag the speech. So to say something like, you know, uh, our fact checkers disagree, um, and that can do interesting things. On the one hand, you get these funny sort of absurd cases um, where the thing being checked isn't really a fact it's some kind of opinion and so the fact checking 
looks uh, kind of Pravda-esque. You know, it, it, there's something disturbing about the fact-checking next to it, and it actually undermines the whole fact-checking project, and people start to think, I don't trust this stuff at all. Um, I mean, clearly there's something useful about having fact-checkers around. I mean, I used to, whenever someone would send me some bizarre conspiracy theory, um, you know, I would refer them to Snopes, and it would, in a very systematic way, sort of detail why there was an issue there. There's a concern, of course, that once people start to, to trust fact-checkers and say, well, this is what is true, then others have an interest in trying to control those fact-checkers and run their own propaganda through them. So, yeah, you're always going to wind up in this contested space. Getting back to Quilani, maybe looking at, if, if one takes the more pessimistic view of South Africa's future, and some days I find myself more on the pessimistic side, other days more positive if you think of the upside. So one thing that I think politicians and other people try and hype up a lot is, is quote-unquote tensions between races and race groups, maybe a little bit religious groups, that kind of thing. So in terms of the judgment and how it can be used, sort of precedent that it sets for the future, do you think we'll see more like you know cases of, of racism, racism accusations, hate speech, that kind of thing? Do you think it, it helps to better clarify how to handle those situations? Because you very much still have those, unfortunately, where people utter racist speech and those should be addressed and handled properly. But it also shouldn't be a case of, I mean, to, to link to your Pravda point, this sort of uh, space where you try and police your own thought the whole time, where you try and think, oh, I'm, I'm going to offend someone. You know, it's not going to be intentionally hurtful, but I'm going to offend them, so I should rather not, you know, say this thing kind of thing. What do you think of, of that sort of probability, how this case can help with that situation? Yeah, so what the case does, it does provide an enormous amount of clarity about what constitutes hate speech. So what the court did was confirm that the uh, Quality Act was unconstitutional. It didn't use the same test as the Supreme Court of Appeal. Um, what it did was to say, look, that term hurtful speech um, uh, must be removed from the Act. Um, it's it's a vague term. It doesn't find uh, any traction in the Constitution. Uh, it also said that you must look at the remaining terms which are mentioned, which is harmful speech uh, and incitement to harm and promotion or propagation of hatred. And it says you must have a conjunctive in between. So it's a little complicated the way it's phrased, but the idea is that the speech must either be harmful or incite harm, but then also must and promote uh, or propagate hatred. So you can't just have any one of those things. You must have the harm and the hatred together. So that makes it harder to make a finding of hate speech, and I think that's a good thing for protecting free speech. Um, ben Winks wrote a public article on this. Um, so uh, there was a one of the interesting features of uh, of hearings being digital um, instead of in person is that the public can watch these hearings. Um, so they're broadcast live on YouTube. The whole Kulani hearing is available on YouTube. Uh, it's an absolutely fascinating thing to watch because you can see uh, me argue the case, but then you can also see all of the other counsel, you know, uh, arguing different points on it. Um, and so that's publicly available on the court's uh, YouTube website. But recently there was an incident. Um, I think I think the case has to do with um, Muslim marriages, and one of the counsel appearing in the case was wearing a burqa, um, and off screen someone hadn't muted their mic. Um, and they made a comment to say that, I, when did she start dressing like a ninja? Now, both 
both um, sets of counsel in the case are Muslim. Um, and uh, it's sort of, you know, the, the court was sort of taken aback by the comments and, you know, asked the person to mute their mics. And uh, Ben Winks wrote this article saying, you know, before Kalani came out, this is the kind of thing that would have been viewed as hate speech, um, calling someone a ninja. And the claim was that it was, um, I think he says it was sexist, racist, and Islamophobic. Um, now, he then says, with Kualani, it's pretty clear that it wouldn't count as hate speech. Um, now, one of the ambiguities that was present in the development of our law on hate speech was this question about hurtful words. Uh, and so one way that things were interpreted was that hurtful was hate speech. And so there's a case um, called Hauselman versus Galeba, um, where someone calls someone else a monkey. Uh, the court said, look, um, this clearly isn't harmful and it's not advocating hatred, um, but it is hurtful. And we say disjunctive reading of, of, the, of the test, it is hate speech. And so that created all this ambiguity. That's why you had the sort of Penny Sparrow sort of situation also relied on that thing to say, you know, calling people monkeys is hate speech. Um, that's why there was that fine against her. So a lot of that stuff will now clearly not count as hate speech. Um, and so that's quite a useful thing. One way of thinking about it is just because you, I mean, you might think that calling a, a person in a burqa a ninja is offensive, but the court has made it very clear, offensive speech is not hate speech, that's protected speech. And one way to deal with that is with more speech. It's to point out why you think that's a repugnant thing to say. Um, it's not about using the strong jackboot of the state to clamp down on your neck. Um, you know, there are other ways in which you can deal with these things. Not everything has to be dealt with through a court process. Uh, ben Winks bemoans the idea that the equality courts will no longer have jurisdiction over these cases. Um, I think it's quite a good thing. Um, I think the sort of idea that every small slight must be litigated to death at great expense and at great public shaming is not a good thing for a healthy society. As you point out, there's a big chilling effect to that. People get very worried about what they can say, and they might not say things that ought to be said. Um, you know, uh, And I think the idea that once we start to say, well, everyone should be polite, you can mandate that through sort of social customs and through etiquette rules, and maybe you think there's a moral obligation to be polite. But when you say, if you're not polite, we're going to put you in jail, that starts to look incredibly fascist and very, very dangerous. Here's one of the things that Ben Winks doesn't think about. He says, calling someone a ninja is Islamophobic. Now, being a ninja has its own rich heritage in Japan, right? Shinobis, um, you know, sort of have this long heritage. And you might think that someone who says, well, there are modern ninjas. There are people who, you know, proclaim themselves ninjas in a very positive sense. And they might say, how dare you belittle my tradition, which has all these ancient roots, that you, as a white man, would come and make these assumptions about my rich tradition. I'm incredibly wounded by this, and I want to lay a hate speech complaint against you. You know, that's the kind of problem that you have, is that, you know, he's trying to make one particular point, someone else could read it another way, and suddenly, you know, he's sitting before an equality court. And I don't think he would have foreseen that possibility, um, but that's clearly not the kind of thing that you want courts adjudicating upon. This next one is a bit more of a, a meta question, I suppose. So obviously up to you how you want to tackle it. But just the, because uh, uh, we, we've touched now on the chilling effect of possibly policing speech, as it were. But on the, then I think the, the flip side of the coin is you, uh, you have freedom of speech. And we as, as classical liberals very strongly support that as part of a robust, healthy society. The other side of that is uh, 
the responsibility that you have to then take ownership of your speech. So freedom of speech doesn't mean freedom from the consequences of your speech. Just your, I wanted to, to just ask you how one understands that concept and why that's so important, because I feel a lot of time when we get again to the fake news thing, the, you know, Facebook kind of thing, you want, you know, one side of the argument is it's a private platform. If you say something with which they disagree, you know, they're going to hold you responsible for that. So that's possibly suspending your account, that kind of thing. Or society can then, if you say something racist or homophobic, society can choose to ban you from a bookstore or whatever. That person who owns that that store can choose not to trade with you, as it were. What do you think of, of that balancing act or that, that flip side, as it were? Yes, I think there are different kinds of consequences. Um, and I think as a classical liberal, you should be very wary of state-enforced consequences, um, yeah. like being jailed or being fined. Um, it's a different question as to how you should feel about social consequences. So John Stuart Mill does say we should guard against the tyranny of the majority. You know, he thinks that, you know, it is one way to regulate speech is through social opprobrium, but there is a danger in that. And I think we see that manifesting um, with, you know, a lot of people who haven't been punished by the state, but they've been punished by their employers. Um, they've been fired for these minor slights. So if we think about someone like uh, Chris Hart, um, who was uh, at one of the big banks and had made a statement on Twitter, I think that's, um, you know, South Africans have a strong sense of entitlement um, and was then fined for that. Um, and you see it with uh, academics who are kind of hounded out of campuses for saying things that, you know, don't fit a certain orthodoxy. Uh, and that is a dangerous thing. So you might think that, for example, you don't want, um, you don't want a state which is enforcing these very strong codes you think that society can play an important role in, let's say, shaming people under the right conditions or setting certain values, but there is a point in time where the mob becomes very dangerous. And really what you want to do is have a society of, uh, of tolerance. It's not just that free speech is a right, but that it's a value. Uh, and I think it's important that we try and inculcate that value where we say, you know what, I disagree with you. I disagree with you vehemently, but I will fight to the death for your right to disagree with me, um, that we ought to be able to air these different views. And I think that's very important. I think we're, we're seeing this play out in academia where, you know, the place where people should be able to explore difficult, strange ideas is the worst place to do it. So academics completely and utterly filled with fear about saying the wrong thing, that they will you know, be seen as as heretics because it's sort of become almost like a religious place where if you don't buy the orthodoxy on race or gender or whatever the new flavor of the month is, you know, then you will be condemned. And so people just don't, don't say anything. And that's quite a dangerous thing. I think what we're finding is that these alternate spaces are opening up. So, you know, one of the wonderful things um, about, about technology is that you can have a show like yours where you can invite someone on to have a long format discussion with them and you can explore an idea in a back and forth way. It's not Twitter. It's not a, you know, 280 characters, which someone can sort of take out of context. You know, here you've got to be the kind of person who's got to sit and listen and hear all the nuance and hear the counter arguments. And, you know, like that's a very useful thing. Um, but you might find that a lot of people who are going to appear on these long form shows, you know, aren't able to say what they'd like to say, you know, in academia. Um, I run a show called Brain in a Vat where we, it's a philosophy show. Um, most of our guests are academic philosophers. And we talk about, you know, all sorts of weird and wonderful things, um, you know, some of which can be quite controversial. Um, and our guests often say to us, it's so nice to be able to say this in a space where we 
we disagree with each other on purpose. We're trying to find out what's true. We're asking each other very hard questions. You know, we're adopting the mode of a of a counter view to try and find out what's true. But they walk away with a big smile on their face because they know the people that are watching this are watching it in good faith and that they're not worried about losing their jobs or you know being deplatformed because it's really a safe space for these kind of different views. Now that you all know that Mark also hosts a podcast, which is a quote-unquote safe space, I highly advise that you subscribe and go and comment on all the episodes with which you disagree with the points, the many authors. So go and disrupt their safe space, as it were, and do it in a constructive manner. Try and give Mark some, some pushback. Mark, if you'll indulge a, a another, I think, very philosophical question, I wanted to ask you, in South African law, I guess our tradition, obviously it's a mix of common English common law, uh, Roman Dutch, we've got traditional uh, African law as well, forming part of our whole constitutional setup. But I wanted to just ask, in terms of free speech, freedom of speech, uh, that you know, free, free human action, as it were, do we generally go more for a utilitarian approach? Is it, you know, sort of, we will constrain in actions, individual actions, which negatively affect the, the overall good of, of everyone, as it were, or is it more of a maybe consequentialist approach is it more just principle that this is what it is you know maybe someone who we both know very well martin van staden you know who had sort of leaned towards that way more it's principle this is this is in favor of individual rights that thing isn't therefore you won't have it kind of thing i don't know if that question makes sense but i just wanted to get your sort of thoughts on on how it's been shaped in south africa that that sort of how you weigh different different approaches to individual rights Yes. Yeah, so if we think about, let's say, the two kinds of extreme positions you could have, the one is act utilitarianism, which is that you're right. trying to maximize the good um, through your system of law. Uh, and the other one would be, let's say, a Kantian approach where you say there are certain rights which are absolute and cannot be limited regardless of the good consequences that you could get from limiting them. I think we probably adopt some kind of rule utilitarianism, which is to say that it is a good idea for society if we introduce certain rules. But then if we're concerned with negative consequences under certain conditions, we can set those rules aside. Um, so we definitely don't have absolute rights. Uh, there, are, there are certain things in our constitution which say that you cannot derogate from them, even under a state of emergency. So, for example, uh, the right to life, um, that means a negative right to life. So in other words, the state can't execute you. Um, you know, the state can't start killing people. But the idea that the state has an obligation to save lives, the view is that that's limited. You know, the state's got certain available resources to it. There's a case called Subramani with a guy who needed um, dialysis. And the state said, look, you're over 60. We don't have the resources. I'm sorry, but, you know, um, we're going to allow you to die. But a lot of our other rights can be limited through a limitations clause. The idea is that um, if it's um, justifiable in an open and democratic country, um, then you can do it. And we've definitely seen that without a doubt with the COVID regulations. So, and it's not clear that all those rights limitations have been justifiable and some of them have been tested and some of those limitations have been found to be wanting. But we've had limitations on our speech rights, on our freedom of movement. We still have a curfew. We have a government imposed bedtime of 10 o'clock at night. Um, you know, that is a severe limitations on, on people's freedom. Um, the argument is that it's for a countervailing good, uh, the good being to protect the healthcare system. It's not clear at the moment, at least, uh, that that's, that good is being achieved um, from stopping people from driving late at night or you know, going to nightclubs or whatever it is. Um, 
but we definitely don't have this kind of absolutist take. There is a interesting test case before the Constitutional Court at the moment. Uh, it's a matter in which I've appeared and which judgments um, should be forthcoming quite soon, which is whether our elections can be postponed. Um, and so our constitution creates a whole series of obligations. The one is that the idea of a universal franchise is baked into section one of our constitution. Um, the right to free and fair elections uh, is a protected right in the Bill of Rights. Um, and the Electoral Commission has an obligation to ensure that those elections are free and fair. They also have an obligation to have regular elections. Um, and our municipal elections are supposed to occur um, every five years and that there's a 90-day window for leeway that's that's put in, which means that in terms of Section 159 of our Constitution, we have to have elections by the 1st of November. Now, the Electoral Commission has said they can have an election by the 1st of November, but it will not be free and it will not be fair. Um, because of the various um, lockdown rules that have been in place. Um, they haven't had a registration weekend, so a number of people will not be able to vote in that election. Um, it's um, hundreds of thousands of people that will not that'll be disenfranchised. Um, also, political parties haven't been able to canvass in the way they ordinarily would have. Um, and so their, their view is, you know, we want a postponement of this election, and they would like a postponement until February. Uh, this is a question that the court is seized with. And one of the questions is, does the court have the power to grant this postponement? And there are two arguments that have been raised. The one is to say that it is intrinsic in any legal system that you cannot be asked to do the impossible. Um, I cannot create a law which says you must fly. Uh, it's not possible to do, therefore you can't have the obligation. And the IC have said, look, it's not possible for us to meet our obligation of free and fair, given what's occurred. Therefore, we cannot have an obligation to provide an election by this date. The other one is to say, um, look, if we do have this obligation, then you must declare our failure to have the, to have the election by this date as um, a breach of our constitutional duties. But then the court must use its remedial powers uh, to delay that that declaration of invalidity until February, which would then allow us to have an election at that later date. So this is an interesting open question. Uh, the uh, position that um, I argued before the court on behalf of the Institute for Race Relations was to say, look, if the court doesn't have the power, uh, it must dismiss the Electoral Commission's case. In other words, it cannot grant itself a power it doesn't have just for political goods or expediency. You know, it can't kind of reach into a political realm. It is bound by the law. It is the upper guardian of the Constitution. But if it finds that it does have the power, then what it must do uh, is to stagger the elections on a provincial basis so that because the nature of COVID is such that you have these rolling waves, and it's not just the national wave, but it's a provincial wave. So if you think about Kateng, um, Kateng really had an, a gigantic wave um, that far exceeded all the other provinces up until a few weeks ago. And now Kateng has a very, very low active caseload. Um, and so you might think that the way to have an election is not to try and wait for this perfect moment when you can run one election simultaneously across the country, because that's very, very hard to achieve. You know, instead of piling up nine hurdles and trying to surmount them with one galactic jump, you should separate those hurdles out and run elections in those provinces where it's safe to do so. And so that was our recommendation to the court, um, and we wait to see what the court decides. But that gives you an idea of, as you say, the sort of underlying moral framework, which is firm obligations and consequences on the other, and the kinds of things that courts have to consider. 
one of the the sort of final questions I have for you. There's a few more after this one, but just on the Koilani case, I was wondering about any other related cases and what they might tell us, you know, specifically, of course, about the hate speech issue, freedom of speech, that kind of thing, uh, or anything else that you think is sort of tangentially linked to it, as it were. It's been such a big, big case in our in in regular daily discussion to almost think now, oh, it's over, kind of thing. <laughs> Not that we don't have enough to talk about in South Africa, but you almost think, oh, okay, Koilani is done now. So. <laughs> Yes, so a lot of cases have been on pause because of Kulani, um, because it really is the case to determine what our hate speech laws will be. The main case that's been on pause is the case of Masuku, um, which the, the Rule of Law Project was a friend of the court in, in which I appeared for. Um, there, um, the question is whether Bongani Masuku, who made a series of statements um, targeting Zionists, um, constituted hate speech. Um, and the court held that it would not deliver judgment until Kualani had come out. Um, the court has sent out directives asking the parties who are involved in that case to uh, put in further submissions to say, what do you think the impact of Kualani is on this case? One of those questions is, given that there's been a change in the law, whether it can be uh, dealt with retrospectively. Now, on Kualani, um, the Constitutional Court found that it could use the new test um, to determine whether Kualani's article constituted hate speech. Um, and so the court may adopt a similar approach with regards to Masuku to say, well, even though this was said, I think in Masuku's case about 10 years ago, uh, the new test will be the one that will be used to determine whether his speech counts as hate speech. There's a question there because he used the term Zionists, um, whether it was code for Jews, um, which is a, a clearly protected category in the constitution being religious groups. Uh, belief is a group that is mentioned in Papuda. And um, while the court in Kualani flags that that belief might be a dangerous category to protect, it doesn't strike it down. Um, so it'll be interesting to see what happens there. The other cases that are impacted are the, the flag case. The um, high court found that um, certain displays of the old South African flag would constitute hate speech. That case is on appeal before the Supreme Court of Appeal. I also appear in that matter. Um, and so the new test will have an implication on that. Um, there have also been uh, hate speech complaints against the EFF um, for singing songs like Kill the Boer. Um, and there'll be questions as to whether um, those will constitute hate speech. The last question, which I thought we would wrap up on, unless there's more, of course, that you, you know, that you want to elucidate from the question or just anything else related to the case. But just the implications of Kualani for the hate speech bill, which has again been published for comment. This again crops up every few months. Uh, I think a lot of our focus has rightly been, again, from the liberal perspective on expropriation without compensation specifically, and probably national health insurance, uh, which who knows if that'll ever be quote unquote implemented. But just on the hate speech bill, yeah, well, how does this affect affect that? And should people have anything in mind when they comment on the hate speech bill now? Yes, yeah, so the hate speech bill has had two iterations. It was initially published in 2016. Uh, mm -hmm. It was incredibly draconian, uh, yeah. very, very dangerous limitations of free speech. Uh, a large number of people objected to it. I think it was a cynical move on behalf of um, John Jeffries to try and capitalize on the Penny Sparrow moment as a way of trying to restrict speech. I think once people realized the implications of the bill, they fought against it hard. Um, it was then republished in 2018, um, and it was a lot less dangerous. Uh, that is the version that is now up for comment again. Um, it still strikes me as unconstitutional. 
and very glaringly so in light of Kalani. First of all, Kalani is at pains to point out that a lot of the case law internationally differentiates between these civil sanctions versus criminal ones. Now, the hate speech bill would be criminal. In other words, you could be jailed. Um, and so you want to be much more protective of speech under those conditions. Uh, also, we talked about this conjunctive versus disjunctive. What the hate speech bill does is it says uh, hate speech is either harmful speech or incites harm or propagates or promotes hatred. Now, there is supposed to be an end, according to the court in Kulani. Uh, so on its face, the bill is clearly unconstitutional, could not pass muster. The other thing that the court does is try and elucidate what harmful speech is. And the court says, look, harmful speech is not offensive speech. It's not hurtful speech. It's not that it makes you sad or angry momentarily. It must be a severe impingement on your um, on your psychology. So you can imagine, for example, speech which causes you to suffer post-traumatic stress syndrome. You might think that's going to meet the threshold of genuinely harmful speech. Incitement to harm means that you are calling on people to go and visit a harm on the particular group that you're referring to. So to say you should go out and you should kill them or you should destroy their property, um, you know, that's going to be incitement to harm. Um, so I, I think that the the hate speech bill in its current form is unconstitutional. As far as I understand, the um, submission process is up until the 1st of October. Uh, people can make uh, their voices heard on the DRSA website uh, or they can write uh, submissions um, directly to Parliament. Um, I, I will be writing a submission on behalf of a client, and I would encourage um, others to have their voices heard on that topic. Yeah, I, I can only highly recommend and support your your points there at the end. I think people should make their voices heard. I know it's difficult. It feels like, I mean, this goes to something that you said sort of earlier, but there's so much always coming towards us, but we <laughs> we have to keep on getting the information out there and fighting in different ways, whether it's litigation, public participation, uh, make your arguments on social media, and of course, by supporting shows like like the Free Marketeers um, and organizations like the Free Market Foundation, RR, Afriforum, uh, Sakalicha, all of these, I think, are doing very good work. But yeah, Mark, I don't want to keep you. You are involved in a lot of cases, a lot of work, so we greatly appreciate any time that, that you give us, and I've really enjoyed getting to talk to you today, so thank you very much. It's an absolute pleasure, anytime. Listeners and viewers, thank you once again for joining us for another episode. We hope you found the episode enjoyable and uh, informative. If you if you did, please remember to like the video, subscribe to our YouTube channel, and look forward to more content coming in the coming weeks. Uh, a reminder, tomorrow, uh, sorry, on Thursday, um, on the 2nd of September, I'll be hosting a live episode with Hendrik Krier from Solidarity about their recent NHI research. So for those of you interested in NHI, please tune in for that live with your questions for for Henry. Until Thursday, uh, have a good day further. We'll talk to you all again very soon. Take care.